Part Two, Chapter Four of *The Uttermost Star*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. *The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy*, by Frank W. Borum. Part Two, Chapter Four. Heather and Bluebells. Come with me, and I will show you a few things well worth seeing, and introduce you to a few folk well worth meeting, and I promise that you will not look back upon our excursion as time thrown away. Come along. 1. And first to Scotland. All ministers have a soft place in their hearts for Scotland, and with good reason. Ministers, as becomes men who long to excel, glory in reading the noble records of those historic ministries that will stand as a model to all ministers as long as time shall last. And of such classical ministries, Scotland has had more than its share. And no wonder. Every clear-cut phase of national existence has its own ideal. The life of Greece, essentially contemplative, found its ideal in the philosopher. The life of Rome, essentially militant, found its idea in the soldier. The life of Judea, essentially religious, found its ideal in the prophet. But just once in the world's checkered history, one little nation, during a brief but memorable epoch in its story, found its ideal in the minister. Every Scottish father looked into the face of his boy and felt that it would be life's crowning honor, a consummation worthy of any sacrifice, if that boy of his were to be called to the sacred engagements of the Christian ministry. The old schoolmaster of Drumtochty, everywhere beloved and everywhere revered, did not often visit the homes of his pupils. But when he did, all the glen knew that something of unusual importance was afoot. "'George is a fine laddie, Mrs. Howe,' he said on one of those rare occasions. "'What do you think of making him?' Margaret knew that the great hour of her life had come, the hour for which she had longed and wept and prayed. There was just a single ambition in those humble homes, says Ian McLaren, the ambition to have one member of the family at college. And if Domsey approved a lad, then his brothers and sisters would give their wages and the family would live on skim milk and oat cake to let him have his chance. Maister Jameson, said Margaret, my heart's desire is to see George a minister, and if the Almighty spared me to hear my only bairn open his mouth in the evangel, I would have nothing mare to ask. But I doubt, sir, it cannot be managed. Out of so warm and congenial an atmosphere there arose, as was to be expected, great ministers and great ministries. Now, standing on this bleak and wind-swept hilltop, the heather almost up to your knees, the shining waters of Loch Leven on the one hand, and the deep glades of Dunsinane Wood on the other. Have a good look around you. For here, among these hills and valleys, there lived, not so very long ago, a group of ministers whose fragrant influence will abide upon this dusty old world of ours to its very latest day. To dip into any one of their biographies is like stepping into a garden of roses, for here, within easy riding distance of each other, there lived and labored Robert Murray McShane, W. C. Burns, 
Alexander Somerville, Andrew and Horatius Bonner, and a number of other kindred spirits, whose names are scarcely less familiar. They all dwelt hereabouts. But come, the wind is too keen upon the hilltop. Let us stretch our legs. We will stroll down through the wood, in which primroses are twinkling and the squirrels making merry, into the odd little village of Kinrossi. Passing its pretty thatched cottages, its sleepy village green, and its quaint old market cross, we will continue our stroll until we come suddenly upon the free kirk of Collis. It was here that Andrew Bonner, after whom Mr. Bonner Law is named, ministered for many years. Not far away, just on the fringe of the wood, is the old manse, almost hidden by its tall hedges and its clump of gloomy trees. You must come inside. This was Andrew Bonner's study. It is a dreamy old room, with a vine and a fig tree climbing up on either side of one of the windows. Now turn from that window to this one, and look not through it but over it, and carve deeply into the oak above the window, you will see three Hebrew words. Translate them, and you have a text from the book of Proverbs. He that winneth souls is wise. We are in no mood today to plunge into the grime and smoke of cities, but take my word for it that if we went to Glasgow and visited the church in which Dr. Bonner exercised his later ministry, you would find the same three Hebrew words carved into the pulpit desk. Standing in this quiet room, looking out onto the beautiful countryside, this Hebrew inscription seems strangely to revive the spirit and temper of that handful of devoted and scholarly and faithful ministers who less than a century ago made these heathery hills and primrosed valleys to ring with the name and fame of their Lord. 2. To England now, and again we will keep far from the cities with their dust and smoke. Walk with me down this winding old lane, with its great elms arching overhead, and its hedgerows all ablaze with hyacinths, stitchworts, vetches, and wild strawberries. And we shall come to a laughing little stream. You can trace its course, even at this distance, by the willows along its banks. The rabbits, startled by our approach, scurry into their burrows under the hedge. A hare goes bounding off along the lane, and the finches are busy in the hawthorn. But here is a stile. We will take this shortcut across the fields to the waterside. Just look at the bluebells and the daffodils waving on both banks. A water rat, uncertain as to our intentions, decides to take no risks. He drops with a splash into the water and strikes out bravely for the opposite shore. We saunter gently along the side of the stream for half an hour, soothed by the music of its murmur, and then we discover that this tranquil paradise is no monopoly of ours. There, just round the bend of the stream, sits a gentle old man with rod in hand, his basket beside him, and his attention riveted upon his line. Now, to tell the whole truth, it is to meet this good old English gentleman that I have brought you here. He is one of the most lovable, one of the most thoughtful, and in every way one of the best men of his time. His hair is white as snow. There is a slight stoop at the shoulders, partly caused by age and partly by much bending over his beloved reel. 
but these are the only hints he gives of having long since passed his eightieth birthday. His face is strong and sometimes sad, for he has known terrible sorrows, yet it is suffused by a certain indescribable sweetness. His eye is bright and keen, especially when near the water, yet always infinitely restful. He is dressed neither showily nor shabbily, but with a pleasant trimness that suggests dignity and self-respect. When we speak to him, you will discover that his voice is as soft as velvet and as musical as the waters beside which he spends his days. No Englishman is better worth knowing. He breathes, as Lamb said to Coleridge, the very spirit of innocence, purity, and simplicity of heart. For this is Isaac Walton, courtly, scholarly, saintly, and I have reasons of my own for seeking his society today. As soon as I discovered the three Hebrew words over Andrew Bonner's window in the old manse at Kinrossi, and again on the pulpit desk at Glasgow, I turned at once to the commentators. The words had aroused my curiosity, and I was anxious to ascertain their exact significance. He that winneth souls is wise. The commentators, however, disappointed me. They suggested that the verb translated winneth is an angler's word, and then, like battleships hard-pressed, they vanished in a cloud of smoke. Still, in a world like this, we must be thankful for small mercies. And the commentators have at least given us an interesting clue. He that is wise catcheth souls as an angler catches fish. Now if there is one man among my circle of friends who knows everything about angling, it is old Isaac Walton. To him, therefore, always the soul of patience with honest inquirers, let us submit our problem. We must state it in the abstract. It is of no use mentioning the manse at Kinrossi, or the church at Glasgow. For Andrew Bonner was not born until poor old Isaac's bones had rested for more than a hundred years in their peaceful and grassy grave. To you and me, sublimely superior to the trivial accidents of time and space, that is a mere circumstance. But the old gentleman himself might find it a little confusing. The three Hebrew words, however, stood upon the pages of his Bible, just as they stood upon the pages of Andrew Bonner's Bible, and just as they stand upon the pages of mine. See, the old gentleman has risen. He has thrown some ground bait into the stream to secure his sport for the afternoon, and now he is retiring for the enjoyment of his lunch to a cosy niche against the gnarled trunk of that old willow tree. Let us go forward. 3. The words bear out, says the gentle old man, after we have duly introduced ourselves and explained our mission. The words bear out what I have so often said to my own honest scholars. The work of catching men is very similar to the sport of catching fish. That is why four anglers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, had priority of nomination in the catalogue of the Twelve Apostles. Our Saviour found that the hearts of such men were, by nature, fitted for contemplation and quietness. They were men of mild and sweet and peaceable spirits, as most anglers are. The words that have puzzled you mean that to be a successful fisherman, a man must be very fond of his work. He must love fishing, and give his whole mind to it. Master John Bunyan, 
in that strange conceit which he has this very year published, and which he calls his Pilgrim's Progress, truly says, You see the way the fisherman doth take to catch the fish, what engines doth he make? Behold how he engageth all his wits, also his snares, lines, angles, hooks, and nets. Yet fish there be that neither hook nor line, nor snare nor net nor engine can make thine. They must be groped for and be tickled too, or they will not be catched whate'er you do. Now, in order that you may the better perceive the meaning of these three Hebrew words that have so perplexed you, let me teach you the four rules of the angler's art, which I have cast into verse, that they may be the more readily retained in the recollection of my own scholars. Be sure your face is towards the light. Study the fish's curious ways. Then keep yourself well out of sight, and cherish patience all your days. He that will learn those four precepts and obey them will make a happy and successful angler, and will, if he so desire, acquire the wisdom that is celebrated in the Hebrew words you brought me. By this time the old gentleman has finished his lunch, and is looking wistfully towards the spot that he so well stocked with ground-bait. We may wish him a merry afternoon sport, and take our leave of him. 4. And now before we ourselves part company, let us spend a moment in my study, surveying the spoils of our expedition. We have the three Hebrew words that we brought back from Scotland, He that winneth souls is wise. And we have this curious specimen of versification that we picked up among the bluebells by the English stream. Be sure your face is towards the light, study the fish's curious ways, then keep yourself well out of sight, and cherish patience all your days. What are we to make of this? Let us take it to pieces, and examine the various parts under a microscope, and let the angels of the four corners of my study unfold its hidden meanings to us. Be sure your face is towards the light. The skillful angler will always be careful to see, says the angel of the eastern corner, that the sun shines upon his face, and that his shadow falls behind him. He who turns his back to the sun, and lets his shadow darken the stream, has said good-bye to all the trout. The only man who can hopefully angle for fish or for folk is he of the radiant face, he of the shadow unseen. Study the fish's curious ways. Let no man think, exclaims the angel of the western corner, that he can become a successful angler by learning all about lines and hooks and rods and reels. He must study fish. He must mark their varying habits, watch their curious ways, and consider their fastidious tastes. He must know the things that please them, the things that repel them, and the places in which they love to lie. He who would catch fish must study fish. He who would catch men must understand men. Then keep yourself well out of sight. He who would return from the river bank with a heavy basket, observes the angel of the north corner, must angle with a long line. He must keep as far from the stream as he possibly can. No man ever yet secured large catches, either of fish or of men, 
who was fond of thrusting himself into inordinate prominence. And cherish patience all your days. You will need it, exclaims the angel of the south corner. There will be times when you will have to wait for long, long periods without so much as a nibble, and you will be tempted to give it all up, and you will be beset by a multitude of unexpected difficulties. Oh, the tangles, more than Gordian, of gut on a windy day! Oh, bitter east wind that bloweth downstream! Oh, the young ducks, that swimming between us and the trout, contend with him for the blue duns in their season! Oh, the hay-grass behind us that entangles the hook! Oh, the rocky wall that breaks it, the boughs that catch it, the drought that leaves the salmon stream dry, the floods that fill it with turbid, impassable waters! Alas for the knot that breaks, and for the iron that bends, for the lost landing-net, and the gilly that scrapes the fish! But the angler who has the spirit of his craft will keep smiling in spite of long delays and heart-breaking disappointments and will enjoy the unspeakable rapture of the fisherman's triumph at the last. 5. And somehow I fancy that the angels of the four corners have unwittingly expounded for us not only the quaint old jingle that we found among the English bluebells, but those majestic Hebrew words that we saw amidst the Scottish heather. End of Part 2 Chapter 4